That's okay. Did you get that started? No, sir. Anybody know how to work those things? It's going. Going? Okay. The law which came 430 years after that could not nullify the promise. You know, the question in the whole book is really the question of, uh, are we justified by law? Are we justified by Christ, by grace? If we're justified by grace, by Christ, by faith, that has to do with the promise. And he's saying, well, the promise has to be in effect. Because God couldn't have come along 430 years later, put in the law, and suddenly nullified and abrogated that promise. That's what he said. And he said it can't be both. That's verse 18. You know, the inheritance is either by law or by promise. It isn't by both. So he's saying that the law then did not set aside the promise. That's what we're under. So the obvious question is, well, why the law? And uh, he asked that and answered it. So 19 to 22 of chapter 3. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a, medi- of a mediator, until the seed would have come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not full, is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. It is the law then contrary is the law then contrary to the promise of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Alright, think again about the reason he's saying this. It would be easy to think that the law was useless if the inheritance came by the promise and the law didn't change anything as far as the promise is concerned. So why the law? Well, he says it was added because of transgressions. Now, what was the law trying to do about transgressions? Why, how does, how, why was the law added because of transgressions? To clearly define what was a sin and what was right. Why would God want that done? Because otherwise they would go on sinning without knowing what sin was. Yes, and why did God want them to know what sin was? So they wouldn't sin. So the promise would be appreciated. Yes, because what would the law show? How sinful they were? Yes. I think the idea is that the law brings to light their sinfulness and their need for the gospel, for the promise. Really, the law was like a flashlight highlighting the problem of sin. You know, some uh, women probably would not like a real big spotlight brought into their house. Because it might show some of the dust and some of the things that, you know, in a lesser light probably don't show. You know, and and this spotlights, the law just, you know, by, by defining sin like it did, by, by giving a written code, it really made men realize how sinful they were and how much they need God's grace. But the way he says it in verse 19 shows in several ways that the law was not 
equal to the promise. It was inferior to it. In the first place, he said it was added. If something's added, it's not a part of the basic, you know, thing. Something's an add-on is not a part of the essence of the item. It's kind of supplementary. That's the way the law. It was. It was an addition. You know, do you if you put an addition onto your house, what do you have to start with? Your house. You have your house already. Then you put an addition onto it. If you didn't have the house, you wouldn't put an addition. You just built a house. <laughs> so this is an addition. You already had the house. You already had the, the promise, the covenant. And now the law was added. And uh, it was added uh, and ordained how? Through angels. Through angels by the agency of a mediator who was that the law Moses Moses. what he's showing is that the law did not come so directly from God it came from God through angels through Moses to us and so um, but the promise came directly from God if there's a connection through a mediator, it's kind of an inferior thing than having a connection straight through. Um, I know when when Kyle was, you know, looking for an internship this summer. You know, he finally, the internship he finally got, he was excited about when he knew he was going to interview with the guy that does the hiring. Because in a lot of places, you don't interview with the guy that does the hiring. You interview with somebody who makes no decisions. He will then just refer it over to somebody else. And uh, that's not as good as being able to talk to the big guy directly. And uh, so, you know, having a promise that comes just directly from God to man is better than the law that comes through angels through Moses to man. And, what's more, this law was added for a limited time. Till when? Till the promise had been made. Yeah, till that seed comes that fulfilled the promise. That is, until? Christ. So, what do you know about the law after Jesus came? It's imperfect. Yeah, it's not in effect anymore. It had a limited time until the coming of the promised seed, Jesus Christ. So do you see the things that show that the law is inferior? It was added, it came through angels through Moses, and it had a limited time. JP? What angels brought the law? What does he mean by that? Evidently, when God gave the law to Moses, he mediated it through angels to Moses. Do you know other passages that teach that? What are you thinking of in Revelation 1? Really? Oh, I know what you're saying. That Revelation came that way. I'm talking about the law. The Old Testament law. Yes, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I thought I did. Uh, in Exodus 3 and 4, in the burning bush, you could call him sure. the angel of the Lord. Perhaps, but I don't think that was the law. Sure, I'm just... What about New Testament passages where it says that the law came through angels? Well, like we studied Matt... Uh, Acts 7, 53. Good! You remember that. That's cool. Acts 7, 53. That's what Stephen says. 
I don't know if you've ever noticed that. You received the laws ordained by angels and did not keep it. And there's another New Testament passage that says that. No. Hebrews? Yes. Hebrews what? Two. 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 Yeah. <laughs> and you know that. You got a margin reference that says that? That one I didn't. Oh, I knew you were getting too lucky there. Yeah. Hebrews 2. Uh, 2. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. You know, so is the word spoken through angels. Uh, so... You know, I don't know a whole lot about that, but you got three times in the New Testament that emphasize the fact that the law was intermediated from God to Moses through angels. So I assume that's true. Yeah. Not, not a fair assumption. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The Bible says it three times. I'm, I'm willing to go along with it. So. All right, comments and questions through 20. What does verse 20 mean? Um, someone has said, I believe, that there are as many interpretations of verse 20 as there are years between the uh, promise and the giving of the law. <laughs> uh, I think more or less he's saying that any connection that uses a mediator is inferior. A mediator is not, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God's only one. So in some way or other he's saying if you've got a mediator involved, it's not as good as going directly to the Lord himself. Exactly how it says that, I don't know. The translations are different, and really and truly, this, I mean, several commentators say this is the hardest verse in the New Testament. But I do think the idea of it is somehow to show the inferiority of something that passes through a mediator. And the other questions I can't answer. You have lots of those later. Yeah, I'm sure you will. It doesn't take much. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? You know, it, was it against the promises? No. It, you know, the, the fact is, the law and the promises had different purposes, different functions. They operated in different spheres. They weren't trying to do the same thing. I mean, you know, it's like saying, you know, if, if, if you need a, a wrench and uh, the screwdriver's not going to work, does that mean the screwdriver's bad? Well, no, you just have a job that needs a wrench, not a screwdriver. You know, there's two different purposes for the law and, and for the promise. And, uh, you know, base, the basic difference is this. The law did the diagnosis. The promise did the surgery. You needed both. You needed the law to show what was needed, and you needed the promise, the gospel, to correct the problem. That's what you got. So they worked together. As he says, you know, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. You know, if some law could have given life, guess what? The law God gave to Moses would have done it. If, if law could give life, well, that law would have been a fine law. Don't ever fall for the idea that some people say, well, the problem was God just didn't give a very good law. You know, and the New, New Testament, that's a good law. You know, we can be saved by the New Testament law, but the Old Testament law wasn't very good. No, 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 the Old Testament was a fine law. If, if, if you were savable by law, the Old Testament law would have done the trick. But we're not savable by law. Why aren't we savable by law? Because we sin. Yes, because we have sin, and law doesn't save sinners. If we hadn't sinned, 
Well, Moses, Moses would have saved us, no problem at all. Not like it's a bad law. It's like, we're bad, we didn't keep it, therefore the law doesn't save us. So, uh, what the scripture did, in verse 22, is just shut up everyone under sin. The law, more or less, shows us that there's no way out of our sin and causes us to seek God's grace, since that's the only thing we can do. We can't get out of the sin ourselves. The law exposes sin. It takes away the facade of human righteousness. Um, You can't bypass this step. You've got to see your need before you understand the gospel. You've got to see the law before you see the gospel. If you don't realize that you're a sinner, the gospel means nothing. So it was essential that it be the law first and then the gospel. Comments and questions through 22. When you look at the law this way, it makes you appreciate grace more. When you see what the law was and and, and the, the requirements and, and how hard it was to keep, it makes you appreciate the grace that Christ brought through his suffering, through his death, um, which is key. Um, like you stated, you have no reason for the Lord if you don't see yourself as lost. Yeah, well, the law just shows you how bad off you are and how much you do need the grace of God. Absolutely. Other thoughts? All right, how about 23 to 29? Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to your promise. Okay. So we were under the custody of the law until faith in Christ came. And he says the law is like our tutor. The tutor was like a child guardian that, uh, you know, conducted the child until the child got old enough to take care of themselves, you know, reached 18 or whatever. And so the law was like that. Man was in his uh, infancy. He needed to be kept under the guardianship, the custody of the law. But eventually the man reaches majority. He gets to be 18 or whatever. And now he doesn't need a tutor, a guardian, to keep him anymore. That's the way it was with the law. Once faith in Christ came, then the law was obsolete. It's kind of like um, the arrival of the computer. I bet none of you, except for Sandra in this room, and maybe Star, have ever used a manual typewriter. You have? Yeah. Yep. A manual typewriter? Mm-hmm. Whoa! Where at? My house. There was um, an old one in the basement at the school. And we played with it. <laughs> really? What did you think? It wasn't very fun. <laughs> yeah! Where'd you use one, John? Really? They had a manual typewriter? Wow. That's, that's cool. Actually, I was, uh, whenever I was with my grandparents when they were cleaning, 
the church they had, a Baptist church they had, they had them in there. I hit like two or three buttons on that. I thought it was pretty lame. Did, was it a manual typewriter? Yeah. You know what a manual typewriter yeah. is? I think so. I don't remember it real well. It may not have been. I was like, I was only like, yeah. I was only like five. <laughs> yeah. You when when you hit the key, do you know? Do you guys all know what a manual typewriter is? Yeah. Really? Like slide. Well, you have to. Yeah. yeah. But but when you hit the key, you actually physically you strike it hard enough that it it moves this little lever up that has a little you know letter on the end of it, and it moves up and hits the paper. When it hits the paper, it's got like ink on it, and it makes the impact, the imprint uh, there. It's got like a ribbon usually, and so you hit the ribbon that's inked, and it hits against the paper, and you got the letter right there. Well, what did the computer do to the manual typewriter? Wow. You know, I mean, it's just no comparison. And we had in between the electric and the electronic typewriters, which were a big advance on the electric, on the manual typewriter, because you didn't have to hit those keys so hard. You know, we had an old manual typewriter I started on at home, but man, you had to really strike those keys cleanly. And you know what would happen when you, when you do start going too fast? The keys would jam. Yeah. You'd have to unjam them. And what did you do if you struck the wrong key? Start over. Well, start over or... Why not? Yeah, you, you'd take some liquid white paper and you'd brush it on your paper. And that would white it out and then you could type over it with the letter you wanted. It's so much better with a computer. That's what he's saying right here. Now that we have Christ... The law that was our guardian has become obsolete. It's kind of like the computer is the fulfillment of the typewriter. A computer is like the ideal typewriter. It's kind of like the typewriter you'd always dreamed of, but never thought would be possible. You know, and, and what we have in Christ is like the fulfillment of the dreams and yearnings of the law. The ideal of what the law was pointing to is what we have in Christ. And uh, it's not that the law is bad. It's that it's not applicable as law anymore. We don't need the child garden anymore. You know, typewriters were really cool things. And, you know, in my typing class, we had electric typewriters. We didn't have to use manual. But in my typing class, you know, I got up to 64 words a minute. Uh, which wasn't too bad uh, for that there, just one year of typing. And I got to where I typed everything. Typing for me was a whole lot better than handwriting. Have you ever seen my handwriting? You know, I couldn't read it after a day or two. You know, so typing was great. But wow! Now the computer's kind of like, that's, there's no comparison. So the, the law cared for us in a critical time in the world's history. Just like the typewriter was helpful during a critical moment in my growing up. But then I grew up and the computer took the place of the typewriter. We grew up and the gospel takes the place of the law. So he's trying to help us see that the law is not a bad thing. It had its function. Its function has been superseded by the coming of grace in Christ. So what would it be like... For somebody today to say, you know, I don't really care for computers. I, I, I'm, I'm going to go back to my manual typewriter. <laughs> my stepdad does that. Does he really? Yeah. Wow, why? I've been trying to figure that out, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, we would think of that as being a lot. 
And this is a little odd to go back to the law when you have the gospel uh, that is the fulfillment of all that. Comments and questions through 25. Um, how would you, with that analogy, how would you signify what the growing up would be? I mean, I'm just confused about well, using that where you define what what that maturity When Christ came, the, um, the world reached maturity. <laughs> you know, the whole time before Christ, we were minors under the guardianship of the law. So it's kind of a broad picture. <laughs> In 23 and 24, the we and the our, is, uh, is that Jews? Um, yeah, perhaps. They were the ones that actually respected the law, so. What does it mean to be shut up to the faith, which was later revealed? Well, I, I know, I understand. Well, it's like we didn't have access to it. Because Christ hadn't come. So we were kind of, that, that um, you know, escape was blockaded. He says in 26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now I think the idea of being sons here may be in contrast to the idea of being a child. We're not children anymore, we're now sons. And we have that position by faith for all of you who were baptized into Christ to clothe yourselves with Christ. Through baptism, we're made sons of God. Through faith, we enter into union with Christ. And we need to put on Christ. That is, we need to adopt the attitudes and the characteristics of Christ. It's like he becomes the clothes we put on. You know, we, we live uh, as, as Christians. And in that, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. There's no difference in, in Christ because of race, social class, or gender. Do you know what Jewish men got up and thanked God for every day? Apparently. For not being born a woman or a Gentile or a slave. Well, he's saying it doesn't make any difference if you're a Gentile or a slave or a woman. In Christ, they are heirs also on an equal footing. Um, You know, if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. You know, no matter what race you are, no matter what your social class, no matter what your gender, you have equal access to the inheritance through Christ. You are one in Christ. What a great blessing we have now in Christ. And verse 29 kind of brings us full circle. You can look back at verse 7. We kind of go back to that idea. If we are of faith, if we're in Christ, then we are Abraham's descendants and we are the recipients of the promised and the promise the promise and the promised blessings. Alright, comments or questions here on chapter three. Okay. Chapter four, verses one to three. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. 
In the same way also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Alright, now let me say this. Before we became Christians, we were in something. What, what, what are some of the things people are in before they become Christians? Bondage. They're in, bo- they're in sin and bondage. Sometimes they're sort of in other kinds of things. Like, maybe they're in some world religion. They're in paganism. Maybe they're in some denomination or Christian religion. Or maybe they're just in absolute lust and wickedness. But people are in something before they come to Christ. One way or the other. Now there's always a temptation to go back. If somebody comes out of, you know, the world, sometimes they look back longingly at the things in the world and they want to go back to it. Somebody comes out of another religion. Sometimes they look back and think, wow, I kind of liked it back there. And they want to go back. Well, he's he, he, think about that as we as we consider this uh, these few sections here. He says, even though the child is an heir, how is he treated when he's young? Yeah, isn't that true? I mean, let's say you've got a you know two year old who's the heir of... I don't know who's the richest man in the world these days. I don't even know. Bill Gates. Bill Gates, yeah, okay. Does Bill Gates have any kids? No, I don't know. I don't think so. Just pretend. Not that we know about Just pretend. Could be. Yeah. Well, let's say Bill Gates, you know... Is he married? No. No? Well, let's make him moral. He gets married and he has a son. (laughs) Bill Gates Jr. And, yeah, Bill Jr. is two when Bill Sr. dies. And the will and all is written up that Bill Jr. gets everything. Two years old, heir to the largest fortune in the world. As a two-year-old, what in the world are you going to do with all that money? <laughs> do what? Britain said lots of diapers. <laughs> yeah. What would happen in that case? Like vice president and all that stuff would take over it until he reached the age where he can. Things would be in guardianship. He wouldn't get the money until he turned 18, or he might get a certain amount, but he wouldn't get the full money. He himself would not have independence and autonomy. There'd be guardians or somebody at the will appointed over him who would probably administer even the use of whatever money for him until he got to be uh, old enough. So really, even though he's the heir of the biggest fortune in the world, he's still essentially a slave. I mean, two-year-olds don't run their own business. Somebody tells them what to do. Appropriately so. He's the heir, and yet he's still like a slave. So he says in verse 2, he's under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. Now he makes the application. Verse 3. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Now, in our childhood, we were in slavery under the yoke of the elementary things of the world. That's true if we were in Judaism. We were under the elementary things as a child heir. It's true if we were in paganism. Those were elementary things that we were in bondage to. 
So whether you're thinking of a Jew or a Gentile that Paul's writing to, you can say that about both of them. That when they were children, before they came into Christ, they were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Now, could this guardian also be considered the law? Uh, well, the law was the guardian in, uh, back in chapter 3. I'm not sure he's so much trying to identify who the guardian is here as much as just give the illustration in a general sense. Because I think he is applying this both to Jews and Gentiles. Guardian is wherever you are at. Right. Exactly. Yes. Alright, comments through three. Four to seven. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under law. That he might receive the adoption as sons, because you are sons. God has sent forth the spirit of his son to our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir. Um, so in four, when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son. What's the idea of the fullness of the time? Time is right. Yeah. By whose standards? God. Yeah. There was the time when God thought it was right. You know, according to God's plan and purpose. I don't really know why he chose the time he did. Now, I've seen all sorts of people try to come up with reasons why, and there are some things that you can say about that period that were convenient for the gospel. I don't know which of any of those the Lord was thinking about, but the time was right. And at the right time, under God's plan, God sent forth his Son. Now, look at what he says about the Son in verse 4. He was born how? He's born of a woman. That's so significant. Well, some of the things he mentions between that and being under law shows that he didn't have any advantage on earth over anybody else. Yes. But I mean, were you born of a woman? I hope so. So why does he mention this about Jesus? <laughs> <laughs> to show that he was human. <laughs> yeah, just like that. that's one thing. It makes him like we are. You know, it, it's not a big surprise when, you know, we reveal to one another that we're actually born of a woman. We kind of expect that. It is a big surprise if God's son was born as a woman. That's not the ordinary course of things. Born of a woman. What did I say? Born as a woman. Born of a woman. I said born as a woman. You got that on tape. Yeah, I get that off the tape. Born of a woman. I mean, you know, wow. God's son comes down as a, a man. Now, there's another thing that I, perhaps we ought to say about that. In Genesis 3.15, after man's sin in the garden... He says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the, on the heel. Normally the seed, the, the descendants, descendancy, whatever, the lineage, 
was through the man. And so to say the seed of woman is somewhat unusual. The seed would usually be considered through the male. And uh, Jesus was born of a woman in a special way. You were born of a woman, but that wasn't all that was involved in it. You know, it took a man also. Didn't with Jesus. He was born of a woman, period. That's all there was to that. Uh, so that's special about Jesus. Um, but I think overall, the fact that he was born of a woman emphasizes his similarity to us. He was also born under the law. Do you think about that? You know, what was Jesus under when he was born and when he lived? He was under the law. He came to bring the gospel, but he lived under the law because when did the gospel come into effect? After he died. Do I? I was going to say when he came of age. No, it's after he died. Because until he died, he was still under the law. Um, think about it. What things did Jesus do that shows he was under the law? Well, from the very beginning, his parents sacrificed. Sacrifices. He followed the he law. Sacrificed. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, he was under the law. That That's, you know, and, and that's interesting. Because we were born of whim, or woman, and we were under the law. It's kind of like Jesus entered into our prison the law in order to rescue us, in order to open the prison doors so we could be freed. So Jesus subjected himself to our condition to free us from our condition. So that's pretty cool. Um, and so his purpose was that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. He wants to rescue us from the law and to adopt us as sons. Now do you see the uh, kind of the pattern of this section? God sent forth his son born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might be adopted as sons. Son, law, law, sons. That, so you see what God did corresponds to what he did for us. What's it like to be sons of God? What kind of position is that for us? Royalty. Royalty. <clears throat> Honorable. Honorable. You thought about being sons of God? What does that do for us? Does that elevate us to the same level as Christ? Yeah, in a sense it does. Not totally the same, but yes. Because you're not a slave. Yes. Gives us closeness to God. I mean, think about being adopted into God's family. Wow, you ever wished you could be adopted by somebody else? You know, be into their family? Some of us, you know, felt that from time to time. Yeah, well, try it again. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're in favor of it? Yeah. It, it's an amazing thing when God chooses to adopt us, JP. What does he mean in verse 6? Um, if we're supposed to be his sons, then how does he send the Spirit 
of his son into our hearts? Well, we have, he may be saying the Holy Spirit, or he may be saying kind of the heart and attitude of his son. You know, he makes us have the son type attitude where we look at God as our father. So he's like trying to like put Jesus kind of like some of the attitude and stuff he had in us yes especially here the attitude he had about God as his father that closeness that special relationship we have that special relationship with God we look at him as our father we cry out to him Abba father Abba was just the Aramaic word for father but we have that close father-son relationship with him. You know, uh, I guess, maybe, you know, Matt's the only one here who's been adopted. Anybody else adopted? Some of you may have question marks about that. <laughs> Do you ever really know for sure? But, you know, what? You know, what if you could choose a family you wanted to be adopted by in this world? Who would you want? Bill Gates. Bill Gates! <laughs> you got a one-track mind. Why Bill Gates? He's got money. He's got money! Oh, you were expecting to inherit something if he adopts you, weren't you? Yeah. Maybe. That makes sense. Well... Who's got who's got the most riches in the entire universe? The Lord. Getting to be his heir, that's a special thing. I don't know if I'd be that money hungry. I think I'd like a family to adopt me that would really love me and show me, you know, concern and respect and things like that. You can buy love. <laughs> I don't think so. No matter how many times you say it. You can buy attention, but you can't buy love. Um, so, I mean, but, but being in God's family is that too. I mean, I'm just saying that I think we have thought about, we say, you know, Heavenly Father, please, and Father this, and Father that, and Father something else. We don't think about what it means. We haven't thought about the wonder, wonder nature, the wonderful nature of God adopting us and we're his sons. He's our father. He wants us to actually call him father. You know, if, if you went up to Bill Gates and said, hey father, I doubt that he'd respect you for that. You know, but this father has, has done everything it took in order to make us his children so that we can have not a slave relationship but a son relationship. So that is really an awesome blessing. Comments? Kevin? Yeah, I feel like sometimes we uh, kind of miss it that we don't really realize like how blessed we are to be his sons and kind of reminds me of the Israelites who were slaves but then they complained so many times even after they um, were free that they wish they could go back to that. But it doesn't really make sense because they didn't realize how good they had it with God. Um, and it kind of reminded me uh, of what we were talking about earlier with the typewriter and the computer. 
Like, it doesn't really make sense for us to go back and use a typewriter now that we have it so good with computer. And um, for us, you know, whatever we were in earlier, uh, maybe if, if we were in sin or in paganism, sometimes we wish we could go back to that because we don't really realize how good we have it being sons of God. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. We need to value this privilege. And if we take it for granted, we don't really think about the amazing nature of this, we're liable to sort of disparage what we have. Good thought. Other comments? children that aren't really wanted? That'd be much more rare. I mean, you know, unless somebody's bribing them or whatever. You know, you adopt because you choose to. You don't necessarily have as much purpose behind it when you have a child. Some people do, but I'm saying in some cases, no. Uh, that wasn't what they were after. And so the fact that God adopts us that is so purposeful. This wasn't just like, you know, he created man, and man started reproducing, and here he came down to this person he doesn't even like, doesn't even want, but he was born, and so he's, you know, got to accept him as, as son. Not at all. He made the choice. He decided under no compulsion, that's the point passage you're making in Ephesians 1, he decided under no compulsion, come on in, that he would adopt us and make us his children. Alright, comments or questions through 4-7. In 4 and 5, um, it says that we are under law, so we receive adoptions of sons. And that's not just talking about Jews there. It's talking about really anyone, every person that's born, is born under law until they become a Christian and are in... Uh, see, by faith, they're they're under law, condemned under law. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that's okay. I mean, it depends on how you look at it. But yes, there's a sense in which that's true. Yes. In verse 4, when he says the fullness of time, is he referring to the fullness of Christ as he does in Ephesians 4? Or is this kind of something diff completely different? I think this is when the time was fulfilled. When God saw that it was the right time to send his son, then he did. And that is what took us under the old, or took us away from 
That was the time in which Jesus came and redeemed us from the law and adopted us as his sons. Other comments? 8 to 11? Then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those who by nature are not gods. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Okay. Now, at that time, when you did not know God, how were they? To what? To nature. To those which by nature are no gods. What were they enslaved to? Their sin and idols. Idols. Yeah, I think he's talking about idolatry. In their paganism, before they came to Christ, before they knew God, they were slaves to these no gods, these idols, these figments of their imagination. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? It doesn't make any sense to go back to slavery after you know the Lord. You know, when they were slaves in verse 8, they didn't know God. You understand why they were slaves. But now that they know God, or rather what's even more impressive... They're known by God. It's a lot more interesting that God knows us than we know Him, isn't it? <clears throat> you know Obama? Does Obama know you? <laughs> you know, we all know Obama. But I dare say he doesn't know a single one of us and probably doesn't really care. We, were no, we knew God, or better yet, He knew us. Now, after that relationship has been established, why now would we turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You know, why would you go back into bondage? But he doesn't mean here, why would you go back into bondage to idol gods? What's he seeing as the bondage they're going back into in the context of Galatians? The law. Judaism. Circumcision. He says, if you go back to if you go to Judaism, you're going back into a system of slavery like you experienced in paganism. You came out of one system of slavery and paganism to Christ, now you're going back into slavery in, in Judaism. Judaism today, this is such an amazing thing. Judaism today is no different than paganism. They're both a slavery that keeps us away from Christ. So he says, you come out of paganism to the Lord, now you go back into Judaism, you're just going right back into a system of slavery that's like you came out of in paganism. Logan. In, uh, with Judaism being in regards to paganism, what, what would they be worshipping as being in Judaism? Well, they're worshipping the law, they're worshipping themselves, but they're not worshipping the Lord in the fullness of His plan. Just the slavery of being under the guardian, guardianship of the law. 
Because that's really all that the law has to offer is enslavement and condemnation. And so he says, you know, um, how is it that you turn back again? You know, they've been there, done that. That was paganism. Slavery to worthless elemental things. Going into, to, going into Judaism, you're going right back again into the kind of thing that enslaved you before. These are weak and worthless elemental things. You know, they're weak because they're not, they don't have the power to save. They're worthless because they don't have spiritual riches. So it doesn't make sense. Why go back? Why, or why go into Judaism that to, to Paul is really like going back into slavery again? This is really a, a brilliant observation on his part and kind of shocking that he would equate the Judaizing teacher's teaching with the paganism that these Gentiles had come out of earlier. Shake. You know, think about the example we used earlier. You know, the idea of if if a, if someone that was not your father reached out his hand and took you as his son from maybe a situation to where maybe you didn't have a father number one, or else your father was mistreating you. Obviously, we see it as very stupid for the person who's been adopted to go back the way they were before. But thinking of it from a different perspective, think how much it hurts that father or that man who had reached out his hand to someone that was not his to have it rejected. Um, just the idea of how it hurts our Father whenever He has done so much for us and reached out His hand in so many different ways, whether we're going back to Judaism or, or our own idols, the idol of self, doesn't matter. It's the idea of how much it hurts our Father for Him to reach out His hand to us and to have us reject it. Yes, that's exactly right. For what? For weak and worthless elemental things. It's kind of like Imagine a dog with a piece of meat in his mouth that's running along the side of a stream. As he looks at the stream, he sees his reflection in the water. Guess what he does? He wants that meat. So he opens his mouth to grab the meat and he loses both of them. <laughs> you know, the, what, what a stupid thing to want Judaism and lose everything. You know... He says, I fear you observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you. That perhaps I've labored over you in vain. Paul was afraid of losing the effort that he'd used to evangelize them. Um, you know, he cared about them a lot. And he saw them observing the feast and the days and all that in Judaism. And it's like, you're slipping back into the slavery I bought you out of. Or, or, or helped you come out of. Does... So as verse 11, um, him saying that like, he's done all this and that they're not listening to him, so it's in vain. Well, yeah, if they go back into Judaism, or they go into Judaism, they're going back into a form of slavery and all that he'd done to help them come out of that, that the gospel was useless. So they haven't gone back yet. They're in the process. They are deserting. Yes, Shane. So talking about them going into, back into Judaism or talking about them going to, back to Ireland? Willie, he's talking about them going to Judaism back into slavery. They've come out of paganism, going into Judaism, but that's like going back into slavery. Just a different form of slavery. It's like a woman who ends one abusive relationship with a man who goes back into another abusive relationship with a man. 
Yes, Logan. Um, I can't remember. I've studied this with this been a while. Does this have any connection with Acts 15 of the conference with Judaizing teachers? Well, I think this is written after that. I think Galatians 2, 1 to 10 is talking about that conference. Comments? Yes. I mean, I gotta be careful when I say this. It makes sense in my mind, but my not come across the But I think I think about this section. You know, for me, a lot of sections I need to look at and say, "Well, okay, this doesn't apply to me. I'm not gonna go back to Judaism. That doesn't make a lot of sense." But I think in ways, there are ways that we go back to portions of the law. We tend to, uh, for me, it's been a struggle to, I want to live more by law than I do by grace. Just the idea of, I had to stay in my Bible an hour a day, and not say that's, that's a good thing, but I'm doing it for justifying myself, I'm not living by the grace of God. I've got to do it to be saved. I've got to do these certain things to justify myself. And I think that's something that we struggle with. Um, and it doesn't, it's not a complete parallel with this, but in my mind it makes sense. It's the idea of, you know, don't go back to law. Live by grace. Now, does that mean, like it says time and time again in Romans, does that mean we should just use grace? No, obviously not. But the idea of the Lord has blessed us with grace, and we should stop trying to justify ourselves by our works, and live by the grace. And because you see the grace, then you will do the works. Yeah, that's true. There's a lot of other ways, too, that people go back into some form of slavery. That doesn't make sense after they've already been redeemed and received the relationship with God. But yeah, I think that's a fair comment. Other comments and questions? Uh, just to clarify, verse 10 is talking about Jewish holidays. I think it is. I think the days, months, seasons, years, probably thinking about like Sabbath days... And we're probably thinking about new moon festivals. We're probably thinking about, um, you know, Passover and feast days. And we're probably thinking about, like, the Sabbath years. That, that, that kind of, um, you know, division of the special days or special times is something we see some in the uh, law. Um, yeah, let's see. You've got in uh, First Chronicles 23:31 the Sabbaths, the new moons, and the fixed festivals. And you know, so that that's kind of a that's kind of a way of looking at the special days in Judaism. You know, he just adds here the 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 years, which would probably been like the Sabbath year, the jubilee year, and things like that. Other questions or comments? Alright, this is a pretty good break point. Why don't we take a break here? Verse 12 to 15. Chapter 4. I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong. But you know that it was 
because of the bodily illness that I preach the gospel to you for the first time and that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition you did not despair or loathe but you received me as an angel of God as Christ Jesus himself where then is that sense of blessing you had for I bear you witness that if possible you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me he says I beg of you brethren become as I am for I also have become as you are what does that mean? Say that again. I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. How had Paul become as they were? He... That's Peter that ate with them. Did he eat with them as well? Yes. He ate with the Gentiles, and he more or less became like a Gentile. You know, he sacrificed his Judaism and identified himself with the Gentiles as he preached to the Gentiles. He, he'd abandoned Judaism and become like them. It didn't make any sense for them to become like what Paul had left. Paul left Judaism, and now he turns around and goes for Judaism. Why would you do that? <clears throat> Everybody else realized we were back here or not, but I guess I'll figure it out sooner or later. I don't care. <laughs> they would be having an important conversation. He says, "You have done me no wrong." You know, he's not. He's not. Uh, he doesn't feel personally wronged by them. And then he points out that when he preached the gospel to them the first time, it was because of a bodily illness. Now you wonder how that worked. You know, what's it mean by because of a bodily illness I preached the gospel the first time? How would a bodily illness cause you to preach the gospel? Maybe so. Maybe he was sick, so he had to stop. And that's where he was. And guess what Paul does wherever he is? Preaches. You know, like he uses every circumstance to preach the gospel. Even sickness, if he has to stop there, then that's where he'll stay and preach. Are there other options as to what he could mean that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time? That he was blinded on the road uh, to... Damascus and yeah, I think he buys it. <laughs> uh, the was wrong. Um, so maybe he was I mean he was blinded on the road and were, that's how he was converted and so he's he's able to preach to them because of his bodily ailment. <laughs> that makes sense to me. Right. <laughs> You're saying like using an eye impediment as an evidence that he was really blinded? No. no. <laughs> Jay, Jay, I mean, he wouldn't have preached anything if he wasn't. The bodily ailment that Paul was referring to is that he was blinded on the road. And so that is not necessarily, that is why he's preaching to the Gentiles is because he came to the Lord because he was blinded on the road. Yeah. Oh. Exactly. Okay. Which is wrong. 
He, he does better than I do. I never do a good job of explaining the wrong uh, ideas, but he did pretty well with that. So. Next time I need a wrong view explained, I'll go to John. Yeah, I think I don't think the point is why he was preaching the Gentiles, but why he preached the gospel to you the first time. I think another option might be that he had gone to this area to receive treatment for his bodily illness. I mean, I don't know what what's the case, but that would be another possibility. Could it be that the area of Galatia had a better climate, had better medical facilities, better doctors for whatever he had, or whatever? That that at least is a conceivable possibility. You know, he went up that direction because that was going to be better for his il- illness. John, isn't this where where, where do you get beat to death? Lystra, okay. and it was one of the churches of Galatia. Okay. So. So it probably didn't help his health a great deal. <laughs> yeah. But he didn't know he was going to get stoned. But what I'm saying, we did our whole story now. And that he went somewhere after he got beat to death to get better. Maybe, but I, I'm assuming this is like, this is why he stopped in the Church of Galatia in the first place, and Lister was the third stop we know about. So I, I bet it's not even related to his being stoned. That wouldn't exactly be a bodily, well... Illness, I don't know. He was stoned to death. Well, he was stoned to death, but he revived. He didn't actually die, he just fainted. It's too almost dead. Yeah, he's a stone. They thought he was dead. And drug him out of the city as if he were dead. That's Luke 14. Oh, Acts 14. But the next day, he came back too and got up. and. Well, I don't really think he did, but they thought he did. I think they were wrong. <laughs> Uh, anyhow, um, it's good that we use every circumstance as an opportunity to preach the gospel. But Paul's point in this is not that he so much about the bodily illness, but that they didn't look down on him because of this bodily condition. They didn't despise him or loathe him. They received him so well as an angel of God as Christ Jesus himself. You know, he says, you could have really looked down on me. You know, you could have really thought, ooh, yuck, he's got, you know, whatever it was he had. And just kind of shunned him. I mean, how do you feel about people with bodily illnesses? (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes you're scared because they're contagious. Sometimes they look yucky. You know, it can kind of be a negative. But it wasn't for them. They received Paul so well. You know, in fact, what would they have been willing to do? They'd have been willing to pluck their eyes out and give them to Paul. Not that a plucked out eye would really be very useful, but if it was useful, they'd have done that. They'd have given Paul their most precious possession. Now, everybody has, you know, speculated on what in the world this bodily illness was. You know, doctors have a hard enough time diagnosing living patients without us trying to diagnose Paul 2,000 years later. I have no idea what it was. Logan. Um, I, I have no clue whether this is right or not. I've heard people say that said the, 
pl- the plucking their eyes out may have been a reference to his maybe he had bad eyesight because he's been struck blind. But I don't know. Do you know anything about that? Well, we were just covering that before you came in. And John, what's your verdict on that one? <laughs> <laughs> what do you say about the uh, poor eyesight because of his being uh, blinded by the light theory? It has nothing to do with being blinded by the light, but it's possible he had the eyesight, yes. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah, with the rocks. Well, not the answer you're looking for. Well, it's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how his eyesight was. I really don't think this passage uh, is. I mean, if he had poor eyesight, I guess this would really fit in nicely. But but saying they'd have plucked out their eyes and given them to him, I mean. That's like saying, I mean, I've said, you know, people say sometimes, I don't know if they do anymore, but, you know, I give my right arm for this. Well, I mean, it's not really because of their right. It's just a way of saying I give something really special. You know. Yeah, well. It would be easier to give your right arm if you were left-handed, I suppose. <laughs> I've heard this season that this passage, uh, they get that eyesight with, when he is uh, before... The high priest, and he said, I didn't know you were the high priest uh, because, it, because it was bad eyesight. Uh, so, I'm not saying that. <laughs> John, what do you think about that? He'll <laughs> <laughs> uh, never share with you again. It's not right here. So. There is a good debate whether, it would be an interesting debate, but you could debate whether or not Paul had bad eyesight. And you could get somewhere, but I don't think you could connect the eyesight to him going blind on the road, because Jesus healed him on the blindness on the road. And so it would be it would be preposterous to think that Jesus couldn't have done a good enough job healing him from that blindness. Uh, that's a very good statement. I'm right with John on that uh, all the way through. I think you can debate whether or not he had eyesight problems. I think this would probably be the strongest text. And I don't think this is too strong. The deal about not recognizing the high priest, that's a really tough passage in Acts 23. The the problem I have with that is, he called him a whitewashed wall. How did he know if he didn't know who he was? I don't think he was saying he didn't know who he was. I think he's saying, I couldn't tell by his behavior. I think it's sarcasm. You know, I think it's like, sure didn't act like a high priest. I would have ever known. That that's my preference, but I that's a debatable passage. What else do they use? They use oh large the large letters that we're going to come to. Well, they'd say the thorn in the flesh was that, but I don't think there's something about the thorn in the flesh that's something that necessarily means eyesight. When we come to the large letters in Galatians six, I'll tell you what I think about that. But I don't I don't know. Do half blind people write with large letters? Really? It's, oh, cool. Well, there's this isn't necessarily letters, but there's a lady that attends with us that she's pretty much blind now. She when she was in the process of having really bad eyesight, she gets stuff like she would get a telephone that had like really large buttons on, like this big, so that she could see it. So. Wow. There's actually in the Spanish class. I always wanted this. I thought it was so cool. Uh, there's these, they got the Spanish note, the Spanish books that you had as well. You know, this size-ish, the quarter quarter, and then the other one is about like this size, and the letters are huger. Alright, thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, yeah.
Anything, yeah, we, uh, we digress. Um, he's just saying they treated him so well when he came there despite his bodily illness. That's through 15. Any relevant questions or comments? <laughs> JB. What does it mean for him to be received as an angel? It means they just received him super well. I mean, if you knew it was an angel, how would you receive an angel? Take care of him. I what bet you it? would. Was it where they thought they were gods? No. It was Lystra. Yeah. It was Lystra where they got stoned. Yeah. You were probably talking about this before I came in, but what what is he referring to in verse 12 where when he says to become as I am? Uh, that is, he had become like a Gentile and it doesn't make any sense for them then to revert to what he used to be as a Jew. Other questions or comments? So is Galatians written to a mixture of Jew and Gentile? Yeah, more Gentile, but yeah. As most places were, both Jew and Gentile. Okay, 16 to 18. So you have I become your enemy by te- telling you the truth? They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out, so that you will seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, manner, and not only when I am present with you. Alright, um, verse 16 is debatable. You know that in Greek, you can't tell by the same ways we can tell whether something's a question or an affirmation. You have to tell by the content. You know, how can we tell if it's a question or an, a- or an affirmation? Question mark. No, besides the question mark. <laughs> yeah, we invert it. Like, have you eaten yet? Instead of you have eaten yet. Or we use helping words like, can I help you? Or do you have an illness? Or whatever. They didn't have things like that. So, this, I think, is better translated as an affirmation. I have become your enemy by telling you the truth. I think he's saying that. This is, all because he told them the truth, now suddenly he's gone from being an angel of God to them to being their enemy. And it all has to do with these false teachers. They, verse 17, eagerly seek you. Not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. These false teachers were seeking the Galatians, not for the Galatians' benefit, but because of their own goals. They wanted the Galatians to be their own disciples and to be loyal to them. He says it's good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner and not just when I'm present with you. Paul didn't mind other people having an interest in the Galatians and having a relationship with them. It's not like he wanted the Galatians all for himself. And he got jealous because somebody else came in and developed a relationship with the Gentiles. But their purpose and the result of their influence is to shut them out and to mislead them. So these false teachers were just trying to gain personal uh, followers and and not for something good. And, And, you know, a lot of people are very vulnerable if a false teacher comes along who gives a lot of attention and flattery. Who starts really, you know, buttering them up and things like that. And we need to be careful. Just because a teacher comes along who's got a great personality, 
Oh, he thinks we're just so good. You know, he just sees so much potential in us. And whatever. You know, false teachers can make a big deal over us and they can still be false teachers. And they can still have the motive of just wanting somebody to count as another scout they've converted to themselves. Um, so I, I, I'd like for you to, to serve not only when I'm present with you. True test of, the true test of a disciple is what do you do when the teacher's not present? You know, it's kind of the true test of a class at school. You know, how do they behave when the teacher isn't there? <laughs> uh, that was there some purpose behind that. Humor. All right, comments or questions through 18. So what is he saying in verse 18? Is it always good to be made much of for a good purpose? Yeah, I mean, it's great when you've got somebody showing an interest in you and developing a relationship with you to try to help you grow in Christ. It's not that he doesn't want them to have relationships with any other teachers if they've got a good purpose and motive and a good effect. Yes. More or less. All right, 19 and 20. My children, with whom I am a getaway until Christ is formed in you, when I could wish to be present with you now, and to change my job, I am perplexed with you. Okay, this is interesting. My children, with whom I am again in labor, until Christ is formed in you. That's an odd image. I, what does he mean? Does it mean by before we're baptized? Well, it's, I guess it's like, like what Keith's been talking about earlier in the book. He's afraid that he's labored for them in vain. So he's worked with them and worked with them to get them to accept Christ. And now, and now he feels like since they've gone back, he's a great thing, so now he feels like he wants to go through the whole process all over again. Yes. I think that's the idea. He'd already experienced the pains of childbirth, so to speak, when he evangelized the Galatians. Now he's having to experience labor pains all over again because they've slipped back and he's got to bring them to birth again. You know, he's got to bear them all over again. He's in labor until Christ is formed in them. You know, that's Paul's goal for the Galatians. Now, the false teacher's goal was to dominate the Galatians and get them to be their personal followers. But Paul's goal is to have Christ formed in them. That's what he wants out of this. And, and if the teachings of the false brethren don't result in the formation of Christ in the Galatians, it's not true. Any religious system that doesn't produce the image of Christ in the lives of the people that follow it, it isn't a Christian. That is the goal. True teaching will make people like Christ. That was what Paul was seeking to do with these guys. And, and his method, he sacrificed himself for them. The false teacher's method... Well, they tried to get their own prestige and, and emphasize their own position. So, 
you know, Paul said, I, I wish I could be there. I'd love to change my tone. I hate, I hate being so sharp and so strong. He'd like to be able to speak more positively to them. But I would say, don't, don't leave this without thinking a good bit about the whole idea of the goal of having Christ formed in us. We need to have the mind of Christ in us, the spirit of Christ in us, the heart of Christ in us. You know, there's just so much to be said about Christ being formed in us. That's the whole purpose of the birth process as a Christian, so that Christ will be formed in us. Comments and questions? Um, now, it says, uh, when he talks about their being, his being perplexed about them, is that just referring to about, we talked about in the beginning of the book about uh, being amazed how quickly they had left the gospel? Yeah, I mean, it's just such a terrible thing that they've gone back, or they're in the process of going back into what they'd formerly been delivered from. Other comments? Well, this next section is quite an intriguing section. <laughs> there is nothing quite like it, I don't think, in all the New Testament. It's, it's the closest thing we've got in the New Testament to an allegory. Um, and what an allegory is... I won't go into, but it's more or less what this is. <laughs> and you'll see. Um, it's really cool, but it's quite an involved discussion that was going to require some effort on our part to sort all this out. If you ever really see what he's saying here, this is really cool. It's a pretty sharp thing. Kind of wonder where in the world do you ever think about this? Uh, but I think we need to read it, and then we'll start working on it. 21 to 31. Tell me you who desire to be under the law. Do you not listen to the law? It is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through, pro through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate will be more than those, who, those of the one who has a husband. Now, mothers, like Isaac, are children of promise, just as that time he was born just as at that time he was born according to the flesh, perse persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So also it is now. But, as, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Okay. Tell me you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? If you want the law so much, why don't you listen to it better? He says Abraham had two sons. Now, obviously, they've been talking a lot about being children of Abraham. Paul picked up on that in chapter 3, and he talked a lot about being sons of Abraham. But 
you know, I, I suspect that the false teachers kept talking about the importance of these brethren becoming sons of Abraham. They need to be sons of Abraham. They need to be circumcised like Abraham was. They need to become the sons of Abraham. Well, Paul reminds them that Abraham had two sons. Well, really had more than that. But he had two sons that are relevant for this story. Who are the two? Ishmael and Isaac. Now, I want us to go back to Genesis 16. We really need to get familiar with this story in order to understand what he's saying. Genesis 16, God made these promises to Abraham that his family would become a great nation, they'd inherit the land, and through his descendant, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Right? He made all those promises. What do those promises uh, imply? That all descendants of his well okay but what if, if even God gets all these promises what's he got to have he got to have a son how can your descendants do anything if you don't have any Abraham didn't have any and he's getting on up in years so Genesis 16 now Sarai Abram's wife had borne him no children and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. After the, uh, Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. Now, what does, what's Sarai's mentality here? Help God. Yes. Why does she need to help God? He made these promises to the descendants and there aren't any. She's been unable to have any children. What's God going to do if she doesn't help out? She's going to, so, so what's her plan? Yeah. Get my servant to have children and that way Abraham can have children and that way God can fulfill his promise. Isn't that nice of her wanting to help God out? What do you think? Weird. <laughs> Weird. Kind of perverted if you ask me. But... Yeah. But, but you know you hate for God not to be able to fulfill his promise. <laughs> exactly. What's so funny? If God doesn't do it, do they think that? She, how does she think that she can? Well, she'll give her handmaid. See, that'll 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 help out the problem. This is the mentality of not trusting God. It's not a faith trust mentality. It's thinking that if I don't do this, God can't get the job done. Human effort to try to keep, help God keep his word. And really Sarah blames God for this. You know, God prevented me from having children. I'm going to have to do this. It's man's attempt to fulfill God's promises by their own works. By their own achievements. That's interesting. And it says that Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. 
You know, the only times, at least in Genesis, that the phrase listen to the voice of is used is here and in Genesis 3 where Adam listened to the voice of Eve. (laughs) (laughs) You're saying husbands shouldn't listen to their wives. (laughs) I am. (laughs) Well, who should Abram have listened to? God. Who should Adam have listened to? Yes. And just as Eve took the fruit and gave it to Adam... So, in verse 3, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar and gave her to her husband Abram. This is presented in very parallel terms with the original temptation and fall. Sin is more dangerous when it's suggested to us by somebody we're close to. So, that's what, that's what started this. They tried to achieve God's promises by their own works. Well, verse 4, he went into Hagar and she conceived and when she saw that she'd conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your maid's in your power. Do to her what's good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly and she fled from her presence. You know, this did not work very well, does it ever, when we try to do things our own way? How does Sarah feel in this situation? Jealous, humiliated. How does how does Hagar feel? Sad, oppressed, treated harshly, and she flees. Wonder how Abraham felt. <laughs> Do I? Yeah, what a mess. He loses, uh, you know, Hagar. Hagar flees, but the angel appears to Hagar, and Hagar comes back home. God tells her to. Notice in verse 16, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Now, look on over to Genesis 21 and verse 9. 21.9, now Sarah, see by now Sarah herself bore a child. Remember how old Abram was when Sarah conceived? Uh, yeah. 99, I think. So about how much difference in age was there between Ishmael and Isaac? 13 or 14 years. And so when Isaac's born, now verse 9 of Genesis 21, now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, mocking. Therefore she said to Abraham, drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son, but God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her, for through Isaac your descendants shall be named, and so forth and so on. So, Ishmael makes fun of little Isaac. I bet I know why. I bet I know why. (laughs) (laughs) He's because Ishmael's the older one, he and he thinks he'll get the inheritance. Also, it's not because Abraham's heirs are so old. I don't think we've come up with the right reason. Why would Ishmael be mocking little Isaac? Isaac? Jealousy. 
You know, what happens when Isaac is born, even if it's a normal situation, what happens when the little one comes along? Yeah, and they get all the attention and, you know, all that. How much more when this is actually Sarah's child? Sarah finally had a child. This is the real legitimate son of Abram and Sarah. They, Ishmael's had all the attention for all these years, and now they've got Isaac. And I can imagine Ishmael's kind of left out, and so he's probably angry with Isaac. Makes fun of him. Sarah sees that, and what does she want? What is what is what does Sarah want to happen? Drive him out, kick him out. God tells Abram, "Go ahead." So Abraham kicks Hagar and Ishmael out at Sarah's request. It wasn't a very good moment when they tried to help God out. That's that's always kind of a bad deal. All right, comments or questions about that? We really needed that before we could understand this. All right. Um, well, let's go through this a little bit. In 22, Abraham has two sons. The one by the bondwoman is who? And the one by the free woman? All right. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, the son by the free woman through the promise. Do you see why he'd say the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh? It wasn't miraculous. Yes, and represented their human ingenuity, their own works. They're trying to do this on their own. Whereas the son by the free woman was through the promise. Now, he says these are two covenants. You know, one of them is the covenant on Mount Sinai. She's Hagar. The other one is the covenant corresponding to the present Jerusalem. Um, You know, so you've got, you know, one that's Mount Sinai, they're slaves, it's the present Jerusalem. In contrast, you've got the Jerusalem above, that's our mother, and so forth and so on. Now, he's presenting these two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. He's telling something about the story about them. Now, there's really two main things we've got to do in this story. First of all, we've got to decide, are these, are these Galatian Christians, are they sons of Abraham through Isaac or through Ishmael? Are the Galatians sons of Abraham by Isaac or by Ishmael? Well, think about it. Ishmael was a result of Abraham and Sarah trying to do what? Fulfill God's promise themselves. Yes. Help God out with their own plan, their own works, their own strength. This is confidence in the flesh, trying to do it on their own, trying to help God out. Feeling like they've got to do these things of themselves for God to be able to do his job. Now what does that apply to? What is that? Is that more like the Judaizing teachers or that is that more like Paul? Yes, because what were they trying to do? Kind of do their own works 
so that they could save themselves on their own. So they, that fits more Ishmael and Hagar. Does that make sense? Because Isaac, this was just the promise. This is just faith and trust. When the when God came down and told Abraham he'd have a son, Abraham believed. And so Isaac was born by trust and faith. Ishmael was born by works, by their own efforts to fulfill God's promises in their own ingenuity. You know, well, think about this comparison. What was the difference in position between Hagar and Sarah? One was a handmaid, one was his wife. Yes, the slave woman versus the free woman. But look at how, like in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, he identifies the Judaizing teachers as trying to bring people into bondage. And chapter 5, verse 1 also, trying to bring them into slavery. So, the system of the Judaizing teachers is more of a slavery system. That corresponds more to Hagar. Sarah being the free woman, that corresponds more to what Paul preaches and teaches, that we have freedom in Christ. So when you ask which sons are they, well, are they the son, are they enslaved, are they, are they doing things by works, or are they free and doing things by faith? Now there's one more thing. Where was it that Ishmael's descendants dwelt? Nope. Wilderness. Of? Sorry. The wilderness around Sinai what happened on Sinai? That's where they got the law. So Ishmael's descendants are associated with the law. In three different ways you can see that the Judaizing teachers, they were the ones that are on the side of the works of the law. Can you go through those three again? Yes. The works versus faith. The slave woman versus the free woman. And Mount Sinai. I mean, this is a really deep allegory. Because he's going back to the very principle behind what happened through Hagar. It was a trust in works and not living by faith. He goes back to the very identity of Hagar as being the slave woman. And they're trying to enslave them with Judaism. Versus the freedom of Sarah. And then the very place where the law was given Mount Sinai is the place where the descendants of Ishmael settled. So he's saying, by rights, the correspondence ought to be that the Judaizing teachers are on the side of Hagar and Ishmael. And the true Christians are on the side of Sarah and Isaac. By those by those analysis, that's really deep. That's cool, but it's deep. Do you have some comments or questions to that point? What's uh, what what is the uh, comparison to Jerusalem between Mount Sinai and Jerusalem? I don't really. It says it says in verse twenty-five. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. Because the present Jerusalem is associated with the law. As opposed to Christians are associated with the Jerusalem above. It's free. 
the, the physical Jerusalem is where they had the temple, where they followed the law. So they were tied into Mount Sinai, where the law was given. Other comments and questions to this point? Does that, does that make some sense, some of you? Look at, he makes three applications of this that are really powerful applications, especially the last one. He says in 27, he quotes uh, in Isaiah 54, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. You know, who ended up having the greater descendants? Sarah's descendants or Hagar's? Sarah's. And particularly in Isaiah 54, in prophecy, he's seeing Sarah's descendants just grow and multiply like nobody's business. Who would have ever guessed that back then when Hagar had a child and Sarah had never been able to have one? So he's trying to say to them, don't be so worried about being in a minority because, and being less successful because God will eventually make it to where the children of the free woman are more numerous than the children of the bond woman. We must resist the temptation to come up with our own ways to help God have success. We must be content to, to have a small number knowing that God has promised that in time the children of the free woman will outnumber the children of the bond woman. Or, or in other words, Sarah's descendants will outnumber Hagar's descendants. So that's one application. We'll, we'll be more numerous. We're becoming more numerous, whatever. And then the second application is verse 29. As at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so it is now also. Who persecuted whom? Yes, and even more fundamentally, Isaac Ishmael persecuted Isaac. Yes, and the descendants of Ishmael, the Judaizing teachers, were persecuting the true Christians. And the remarkable things. Come on in. No need of you dressing up for the occasion. <laughs> the remarkable thing about the persecution against Christians is that it's often not by the world. It's often like it was in Isaac and Ishmael's case. It's by our half-brothers. It's by those who claim to be fellow Christians. That's where the persecution often comes from. It's amazing. The Judaizing teachers who are supposed to be Christians are the ones who are really creating the thorn in the flesh for Paul and the truth in the church of Galatia. We're in the very end of chapter 4, Brent. <coughs> so, he's, at, he's saying the children of the free women are more numerous. Ishmael persecuted Isaac. And, and here's the real point he's coming to. Verse 30. Galatians 4.30. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. Or what do they need to do? 
and set up the false teachers. Exactly. Throw them out on their ear. Make a break with those half-brothers of yours who are teaching this false doctrine. That's powerful. Once you see how he's drawn the comparison, that's the punchline. Just like God told Abraham, cast out Hagar and Ishmael, so these brethren need to cast out these Judaizing false teachers, these descendants of Abraham through Ishmael, who are trying to do it by works, by law on their own. I'm going to pause. What comments and questions do you have to that point? That's a really sharp argument. I like this one. And it kind of comes at you and you're not expecting it. So, the Christians are the children of the free woman and the false teachers are the children of the bond servant? Yes. Yes. Is because because the Judaizing teachers were that's a form of bondage and slavery to the law to the work system whereas in Christ we're freed from the law because it, they're in faith it's by faith and trusting in God just like Sarah Sarah's child is through trusting God yes do okay. I yeah and, and because <clears throat> You know, Paul sees this imposition of the law on the Christians as being a yoke of bondage, a yoke of slave, a yoke of slavery. That it was, it was, it was like being a slave to this law system that they could never ever be justified by. Whereas in Christ, we're freed from the bondage to law. We have liberty. We'll talk about that more in chapter five, but. You know, that's what he keeps saying. It's what he says in 5.1. It's for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not subject, be subject again to a yoke of slavery. He doesn't, Christ freed us. He doesn't want to go, uh, us to go back into a system of slavery again. But what do you think about this teaching to cast out the Judaizing teachers? Isn't that I mean, is that what you ought to do when people are teaching false doctrine? Whenever, oh, if you were to share back then, if wolves were attacking your flock, you didn't feel sorry for the wolves. Amen! It's a good comment. I wrote down a couple of things, for whatever they it's worth. This is just so typical. In our age... People are not deemed to be right or wrong, still less righteous and wicked, but rather to be coming from different perspectives, all of which must somehow be affirmed lest we diminish people or threaten their personal and cultural identities. Isn't that exactly what people are saying today? You know, this is, it's not wrong. No, it's just, this is their way. This is, this is truth for them. You know, and don't just down it because it isn't what suits you. You've got to understand everyone's individual needs and situations. It's a bunch of garbage. You know, Paul doesn't hesitate to say, cast out the bondwoman and her son. You know, we're so afraid 
to take a stand because we're afraid of hurting somebody's feelings. We're afraid of disturbing somebody or making them uncomfortable. It's kind of like a night watchman who's afraid to sound an alarm because he's afraid he'll upset people by disturbing their sleep. And I hated to wake you up when the building was on fire because I knew you were sleeping really soundly and I was afraid it'd hurt, you know. <laughs> you wouldn't want that. Duh. We are so afraid that people won't like it. That we, we, we pull our punches. It just doesn't make any sense to act mannerly when the building's on fire. <clears throat> Yank them out of there. So Paul is very strong. Cast her out. Cast these false teachers out. It goes back to, I guess, the very beginning of this letter when they're accusing Paul of diluting the word. And he's giving his defense that, you know, he hasn't done it, that he's teaching the same thing the other apostles are teaching, and that he's preaching with this boldness. And you can see clearly here that obviously he is preaching with boldness and you know, he's telling them that they're wrong. In no uncertain terms. So that's this allegory. Comments and questions here on chapter 4. When do you know... When is the line to where you can... You are bold enough to tell them that they're wrong and not go sorry for them, but yet the same way try to convince them of the right way? balance well I don't know if that needs to be a balance aren't you doing both at the same time I mean how would you do that well you love them and you love God and so you teach them show them what the truth is seeking to persuade them to follow it Jesus had a whip when he cast people out <laughs> yeah, I'm, I've always really hoped to use that just on the animals, but I don't know. I mean, you know, clearly, Jesus' methods depended on the nature of the people he was talking to. He didn't use a whip with the Samaritan woman. <laughs> Although he didn't hesitate to expose her sinfulness and her need for the gospel. Jesus didn't seem to care a whole lot about delivery. I mean, I've noticed that. We we, uh, we we come too many times whenever talking to people. I can imagine like today if uh, if Paul was if Paul was here today and writing this to a church, you know, we're so politically correct, we try and do it so nicely that you'd wonder if they were they'd wonder if they were really telling him to get out or not. Whereas in Jesus' day he didn't care whether hurt their feelings or not. And Paul didn't care. He just told them that they needed to be out because they were threatening the church. I think we have we need to have that same attitude back on so of being so politically correct about everything and worrying about hurting their feelings. Absolutely. Other thoughts? We had an example last night during the Acts studies about Stephen's Stephen, um, where he was preaching the, on trial, and then at the very end, he just started laying that down on, like, what do y'all do? And 
just being straightforward. Mm-hmm. He was very straightforward. That's an ex- uh, absolutely the uh, the right thing for us. I don't know if necessarily hurting the feelings is the number one reason why a lot of people, me included, don't stand up. It's more because we're afraid what they'll think of us. It's more of a self-focused type of, you know, what will they think of me, how I'm going to say it, what I'm cross right. Um, you know, knowing people aren't so concerned about the other person as they are with their image. Unfortunately. Um, not that that's the right thing, don't get me wrong, but, you know, I think for me, Specifically, you know, more times I'm thinking, how do I take this? How can I say it the right way to where I don't look bad? Or to where I can say it the right way? Um, and again, I guess it just comes back to where is our focus? Are we, are we more focused on glorifying the Lord or on our own self-image with people that um, obviously are in the wrong? Mm-hmm. Other comments and questions? <coughs> Chapter 5, verses uh, 1 through 6. For freedom, the Christ set us free. Therefore, keep, keep standing firm, and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if I receive circumcision, Christ will be no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Alright. He's kind of summing up what he said. It's for freedom that Christ set us free. He paid a big price to free us, to liberate us. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not subject, be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Christ didn't liberate us so we'd return back to slavery. You know, he liberated us so we'd live free and so that we wouldn't let that freedom escape. It's kind of like a military commander rallying his wavering troops saying you've got to stand firm and don't let them bring you back under bondage again. They escaped the bondage of heathenism, of of the pagan idolatry. Don't fall back into slavery by going into Judaism. Continue to resist efforts to add any other burden uh, any other system we need to Christ set us free from those things comments and questions on verse 1 look at the contrast between salvation by law and salvation by faith he says in verse 2 behold I Paul say to you that if you receive circumcision Christ will be of no benefit to you Wow, that's pretty strong, don't you think? And he starts it out, I, Paul. He puts the full weight of his authority behind this. Apparently, they hadn't been circumcised yet, but they're seriously considering it. And he says, if you receive circumcision, then Christ is useless to you. Jesus has to be all or nothing. If you try to supplement Christ with something else, he loses all value to you. 
they would have thought of circumcision as hedge, hedging their bets, kind of a safeguard. You know, let's be circumcised too, just in case. He says it's not a safeguard. You know, it negates what Christ did. Christ freed you from these laws. You know, you can't do anything to to make up for your sins. And uh, to try to add other ways to make ourselves right with God is just to say, well, Christ's sacrifice wasn't enough. And it's to abandon Christ's sacrifice altogether. If you receive circumcision, you forfeit Christ. Comments and questions? So, what would be the clear-cut line between what they were doing and Paul having, was it Timothy circumcised? Mm-hmm. We talked about that yesterday a little bit, and I think that he didn't have Timothy circumcised for the Lord at all. He had him circumcised to keep down Jewish prejudices when he was evangelizing. It was a cultural thing because Timothy was a half-Jew. So, but he wasn't doing this to try to make his salvation a little more secure or earn a few more points with God or something like that. So verse 2 talks about what you lose if you receive circumcision. Verse 3 is what you gain. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he's under obligation to keep the whole law. So, you know, if you receive circumcision... It can't just be circumcision. The law is not a smorgasbord where you can pick and choose what parts you want to follow. It's either you follow you follow it or you don't. If you if you start with circumcision, logically it has to be everything the law says. So this is to put the Galatians back on the, the unceasing treadmill of self-justification that, that you never get there. You've always got to do more and more and more. He said, if you receive circumcision, you've got to do everything. You can't just be circumcised. What good's that going to do? You've got all these other laws you're going to have to keep too. And then he says, in four, you've been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you're fallen from grace. You lose the whole benefit of what Christ did. You're not just cutting off a piece of the flesh. You're cutting yourself off from Christ. You can't be justified by grace and by your own efforts. And so when we try to add some other, you know, self-achievement to what Christ has done, we forfeit our relationship with Christ. Comments and questions through verse 4. The other sides, verse 5 and 6. But we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. You know, he says, but we, not the false teachers, but we, through the Spirit, not by the flesh, wait, not work, by faith, not by works, not by works. So, what we do is we trust in the Lord, we submit to the Lord, we wait for the Lord and allow Him to save us. That's, that's the goal. Notice how He brings together faith, hope, and love. 
in those two verses. Which kind of sums up what Christ wants from us. What, you know, what, what we must not do is to try to add to the faith, hope, and love other achievements of ours to try to kind of nail down our salvation. As if the, what Christ brought us wasn't quite enough. we got to do a little more. Uh, to, you know, to be able to really assure ourselves that everything's okay in our relationship with God. That, that's not the right thing. You know, people can do that. Well, I really believe in Christ, but I think it'd be good if I do this too. Just in case. You know, what would you think about, what would you think about a Catholic, say, who, yeah, I really believe in Christ, and I really believe this is true, and, and they're converted, but, well, I'm still going to pray to Mary. Because after all, you just never know. I mean, you know, I mean, Mary might have some influence. You know, I'm a Christian, all that, but but man, you know, if, if Mary is listening, I sure don't want to miss out on that benefit. Well, what about that? Can you can you take Christianity and just add some more things and say, well, that'll just make me that'll just just in case that'll just make it a little more secure. No, you can't do that. That's forfeiting Christ. He won't accept you kind of marrying his system off with something else. And we'll unify the two. Does that make sense? Can you can you see those ideas? Well, I think the thing is that we can do that. But obviously we shouldn't. Right. And a lot of times, because we can do that, we tend to do it without knowing really that we are doing that. Yes. And we tend to think that whatever extra stuff we're adding, you know, maybe it'll help a little bit more. And, and we feel like maybe we'll be a little closer to God because look at this. We're doing this too. We, we got circumcised. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we're a little better. And, and, and it's like, you know, is there any value to anything that the Lord does not provide in his system is it really going to help you to do those other things no it will only hurt you because you cut yourself off from the Lord but if the Lord didn't provide it you know the Lord didn't provide Hagar for Abram did it help him to try to work that out his own way no it ended up hurting him comments and thoughts that's Right. You might as well go ahead and subscribe to all the religions of the world. I mean, worship Allah and Buddha and that stuff. You know, while you're at it. Yeah, exactly. Can't hurt. <laughs> That's the kind of the mentality we, we'd have sometimes in that. And, and, and you just feel a little more secure. Just feel like, well, you know, I hate, I hate not to do that just in case. And then, and then they get to, to working on you, and it's like, well, maybe I do need to do this. Maybe, maybe I don't know. Maybe I mean, circumcision, that, that's a big thing. I, you know, I better be circumcised. You know, and that, well, those, those, those feast days, and, you know, it's just kind of, well, you just one by one, you add on all the laws again. Anything else? Comments and questions? 
I think uh, thinking denominationally in terms of you know, if you're part of the right denomination uh, it's kind of that it's like Christ isn't sufficient I also need to be of this or be of that as opposed to just being yeah. uh, in Christ um, I think that's a way that we can add to um, that good point other thoughts? All right, why don't we take a break? And then we'll come back. The and we'll come out of this. Okay.